Hey everybody, this is Brent Jensen. Welcome back to No Sleep Till Sudbury. This is part two of my chat with Chris Charlesworth. Let's jump right into it. Your next one is uh, by David Bowie, and it's Heroes. Oh, well, again, I could have chosen a few Bowie songs, couldn't I? And I picked mm-hmm. the obvious, really. This one, uh, I think it's Bowie's best song. It's one of the best songs of the whole of the 70s, isn't it? It's one of the best songs in rock and roll anyway. Anyone got to pick their top ten, they're going to have heroes in it somewhere or other. Bowie, uh, I, I saw him as Ziggy Stardust. Again, he's another artist who's, whose emergence coincided with my period on Melody Maker, even more so, I think. And we were very supportive of David Bowie before he really made it. Yep. Um, it was my colleague, Michael Watts, on Melody Maker, who did the famous interview with him when Bowie said he was gay. I think he was lying. In fact, I'm damn sure he was lying. Yeah. But it didn't matter. The power of what he said was more important than the truth of what he said. Yes. Which probably compare with Donald Trump nowadays. But anyway, <laughs> um, but, but, but so Bowie knew, knew that if he, he knew how to get grab headlines. He, he knew how to say something which would be controversial, which magazines, just like Mary Maker, would pick up on. Yep. And so he'd get a lot of coverage, which would help his career, which is what he did. Uh, and this was round about the time of Ziggy Stardust. Uh, he was so colourful, was David Bowie. He was so uh, original. And he was obviously, although I didn't quite realise this until I got to know him a bit, he was really, really bright. Too. Yep. That's something that he had in common with John Lennon and also Pete Townsend. Uh, those three artists, Bowie, Lennon, and Townsend, were the best interviews I did in all those in all those years on Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. They gave the best interviews because they knew how to be interviewed. Yeah. Some artists, I won't mention any names, were really boring, you know. Well, we've just been in the studio, man. We cut some tracks, man. It's really dull, you know. Whereas Townsend would be stimulating conversation. Same with Leonard, same with Bowie, yeah. especially with Bowie. He'd, and he'd say something pretty outrageous to, to grab a headline. Yeah. And if you're a, an interviewer, this was great because it, it, it got the conversation going. It got you know, a chat going. Yeah. Bowie would, would talk to you. Uh, he'd ask me whether I'd read any good books lately or whether I'd seen any good films or, wow. or whether I could recommend anything to him. He was a real magnet, was David Bowie, you know, and he was a bit of a magpie. He'd copy things and change them and turn them into his own ideas, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he was really out there. He wasn't, he wasn't just interested in music. He was interested in theatre. He was interested in fine art. And he'd go to galleries and he'd go to see plays and he'd go to all this sort of thing to, I was on tour with him, with Bowie, uh, on what they called the White Light, Black White Light Tour at 75 or 76. It was a station-to-station album tour anyway. And I was there in Detroit with him, and I heard later that Madonna was in the audience for that show. Oh, wow. And she said the first River Rock show she ever went to, she was 17, was David Bowie in Detroit in 1975. So it must have been the same show that I went to. Wow. Uh, I wasn't sat next to her, though, I know. But uh, <laughs> it, was a big, it was a big arena, you know, it was 16, 18,000 people in there. So, uh, but I thought, oh, well, I was, at the, <laughs> I was at the same show, Madonna. Anyway, after that, I interviewed him out, and in the afternoon of that show, I was in the same hotel as him. And, um, and he told me he was broke, right? And um, wow. so what do you mean? 
broke. He said, I've got no money. He said, I'm completely broke. He said, the only reason I'm touring now is because I've got to make some money. I've fallen out with my manager. He's got all my money. I've got no money at all, right? Tony DeFries. Um, yeah, that's right. And I mean, he wasn't broke. Come on. He's staying in a lovely suite. He's got a wardrobe full of very fancy clothes, and he's got every drink imaginable on the table in front of him. He's got a Mercedes-Benz chauffeur-driven Pullman car. You know those Pullman Mercedes were yeah. really like stretch limos. And I thought this man is not broke, you know. But it was a headline, wasn't it? You know, it was a headline. Yeah. And so I, so I did this interview with him, and I, you know, sent it back to Melody Maker, and there it was. It was a huge headline, and he got loads and loads of coverage as a result. So, like I said, he gave great interviews because he was very intelligent about how to how to promote himself. And then, after I left Melody Maker, uh, I, when I came back to England after working in New York for a while, I worked for his record company, RCA, and I became his press officer in London. This was round about the time of Lodger and... Mm-hmm. Um, and scary monsters, mm-hmm. and also the time when he did the Elephant Man um, that they made a film of. Subsequently, that with John Hurt in, I think was it John Hurt? It was. It was, it was John Hurt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I saw that play three nights running because I took some journalists over to, to to interview him and see the play, and so I, I you know, I, I got to know him there. So, you know, like, oh, Chris, I'm here from Maker sort of thing. You know, I mean, David Bowie met thousands of people throughout his life, obviously. Yeah. But. Uh, it was quite nice to, to, to sort of be on the same side as him for a little bit. That, that was really around about the, the last time I, I, I saw him. Uh, but I, I, I continued to, to you know, go to a few shows. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, was a, I, was, I was a great admirer of David Bowie. And, and Heroes, which is the song I've chosen here, uh, I think that David Bowie, if you really have to think, the apex of his career was when he did Heroes at Live Aid mm-hmm. at Wembley Stadium in, in, in 85. If uh, anybody who's listening wants to go onto YouTube, you can find David Bowie at Live Aid singing this song. And the rapport he has with his audience is just phenomenal. He was such a good communicator. And, and you can just see how much that audience love him and how great he is at communicating and singing his song. And, of course, when you've got 100,000 people singing heroes, along, you know, it's, it's really, it's very cliche to say the power of rock. But you know what I mean? It's... Uh, that that really does it does rock at its very very best. I think absolutely, it's very powerful. And I just uh, when he died, I was it was really shocking. I, I had heard someone rang me up first thing in the morning. Yep. The next thing I knew, I was on the radio, like the local radio station rang me because they knew I had some connection with him. Mm-hmm. And I ended up talking to lots of radio stations that day, only because I was an easy person to find. Mm. I felt of a fraud because I hadn't seen him or had any real you know dealings with him for two decades uh but because i was easy to find and could chat about him a bit then uh, i found myself addressing the nation on the subject of you know the demise of david bowie but uh, great tragedy it was him dying it's his own fault he smoked like a chimney <laughs> I mean, he smoked one cigarette after the other i know he gave up eventually yeah. but uh, he was he, he wasn't a, a healthy man he was he was incredibly thin when I knew him in the seventies as well. He looked like he hadn't eaten for a week every time. I, I don't think him. he. I think he. He didn't eat solid foods. He uh, he drank milk as as his nutrition. I don't. I don't. So I don't milk and blueberry avocados or something. I think he said. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was incredibly thin. So he, he obviously wasn't destined to live for. Long. I think also cancer ran in his family. I think his mother. Uh-huh. 
and father, I think his father died from cancer. And you do, it does tend to have a genetic thing about it, this cancer. Mm-hmm. But it was still a terrible shock, wasn't it? Even though he disappeared and people thought he was, uh, people thought he was ill. And then he put a new record out. And everybody says, oh, great, he's okay, you know, 24 hours later, he's dead. Yeah. You know, that, that, that Black Star, that album, it was sort of like a requiem, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a goodbye to his fans. Yeah, it was, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. It was the perfect death in a way, wasn't it? But, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's. I still, prefer, that was, I still prefer if you're still around. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. That was you know of of all the rock and roll deaths lately, you know that was probably the most difficult one to deal with for me. I think so, and it, it's got the most coverage as well uh, here in the in the UK papers. Uh, David Bowie supplements. I mean, it was as if a royalty had died. The last time a rock and roll death got as much coverage as that was when George Harrison died, and and. Glenn Frey of the Eagles died at the, uh, roughly the same time, or a day or two later, and mm-hmm. it was totally overshadowed, wasn't oh. it? Because, because it coincided with, with David Bowie. And, uh, the, you know, the outpouring of grief as well amongst the fans was was, was really moving here in London, where they, they put a shrine up in Brixton, which was where he lived for part of his life. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't see any rock and roll death with a possible except we should, one shouldn't speculate on who might connect but um, with Paul McCartney it might be the same thing might happen but, but Bowie, Bowie was so loved by his fans he was there was a social influence he had as well again it's, 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 it's okay to be different I think that was what, uh, what a lot of his uh, work put across anyway that's enough about David Bowie you'll have me uh, getting misty eyed if we don't <laughs> move on who's next? Uh, Abba is next, and the song is "One of Us." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, this is my left field choice, if you like. Okay. Um, like a lot of journalists of my generation and ilk during the seventies, mm-hmm. I was unfairly dismissive of Abba when they were together and operating as a group. They won what's known here over here as the Eurovision Song Contest. And okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's 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 a bit naff, as we say, it's the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> okay. And no one who's won it has ever really gone on to any great things, unless they were already popular before they uh, joined it and sang a song on it, right? But most winners, they 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 win. They sell a few records of the song that wins, and then you never hear from them again, right? Okay. And they're very lightweight, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Often they're assembled for the purpose of the competition. So that was one of the reasons why people dismissed Abba. Also, it took them quite a long time to get over to have another hit after Waterloo, which, mm-hmm. and also. Of course, I was living in America when they were their most popular, and ABBA really didn't have much impact in the States. So I missed them. I, I, I kind of missed them. I just thought they were another trivial little pop group that no one was going to hear from again. Right? Well, how wrong I was. How wrong I was. <laughs> um, my dad used to like them, I remember, and that wasn't really a good recommendation for me because he liked a few people I thought were really pretty, pretty lightweight. And, um, <laughs> and, and one night, I remember, it was one night in the 80s, my dad outlived my mother and I'd gone to my dad's house uh, to see him. He lived up in the north of England. I was living in London then, back in London working for mm-hmm. And I think I'd gone out with a couple of friends for a few beers and I'd got back to my dad's house 
I didn't feel like going straight to bed, and I hadn't brought any records up with me, so I had a look at his record collection, and there was Elvis Greatest. And I was slightly drunk, and I went outside <laughs> and had something to smoke in the back garden, but we won't say what, because <laughs> this is a family show, I'm sure. Of course and I it is. My brain slightly adjusted, if that's the right way, right? Yeah. And there was an old pair of earphones there next to my dad's record player, so I plugged it in and I stuck on Ava. Well... Crikey, it was a revelation to me. It really was. I thought it sounded really good, right? And this was the first time I thought I never really bothered to listen to them seriously. And by that I mean in a, in a frame of mind where I was conducive to listening to music. Yeah. They were marvellous. And I thought, God, this is, what have I missed here? Right? These girls can half sing. And these songs are lovely. And the production is fantastic. It's it's, you know, it's a touch of Phil Spector, is this, you know, mm-hmm. and it's got the same kind of big fat sound to it as, as Born to Run, Springsteen. So I, I, when I got back down to London, I went out and I bought another Abra album, Abra Hits. So I thought I'd better listen to this in normal circumstances. But I thought this is really <laughs> good. But I kept it to myself, you know. And over the next few years, I noticed quite a lot of acts were starting to say nice things about Abra. Elvis Costello said good things about them, I remember. Yeah. And, and and so did uh, Kirk Cobain in the Varna. And, oh. and they would all say how great ABBA are, you know. And I thought, yeah, they're right, they are, you know. And slowly but surely, ABBA's reputation, they redeemed, they were somehow redeemed, uh, and they became a sort of a classic act. A few, I sort of mean in the 90s, I, I remember I took my daughter, who was then seven or eight, mm-hmm. to see the Spice Girls, uh, because she was a Spice Girls fan, all seven and eight-year-old girls were Spice Girls fans in the mid-90s. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought the Spice Girls were pretty, pretty, pretty awful, actually. Uh, <laughs> and I for money. And a few weeks later, I took Olivia, my daughter, to, to see Bjorn again, which is the ABBA tribute band, mm-hmm. famous ABBA tribute band. Uh, and I thought they were fantastic because there was there was a lot of fun and good humor in the show mm-hmm. because they pretended they were Swedish and even though they were Australian. And, um, <laughs> and they were excellent musicians as well. And they reproduced those harmonies. And those harmonies are difficult yeah. to, to do, you know. And they reproduced the, the, the ABBA songs. And they, they're not easy to play on ABBA songs on guitar or piano. Anyway... Uh, and on the way home that night, my daughter Olivia, she's holding my hand. She says, Dabba, Daddy, she said, I-, I preferred the fake Abba to the real Spice Girls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, out of the mouths of babes, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and then, then I, I decided at Omnibus Press that I wanted to commission a good Abba book because I realized how popular they were by this time. Yep. I realized that they were almost an underground act, and I knew they were hugely popular in the gay communities around the world mm-hmm. and they never went away you know they, they, the greatest hits albums were always floating somewhere people might and I, I went to Stockholm and I found a Swedish writer who spoke fluent English who could write fluent English who knew them and could write a good book about them so I thought if I've got to go have a good book about it, I've got to have someone from Sweden do it I can interview people in Sweden in the Swedish language because all the any books on them had all been written by British writers who didn't really understand Sweden, you know, and yep. understand where it came from. Uh, and so I did this book called Bright Lights, Dark Shadows with a, with a guy called Magnus Palm. Okay. Earl Magnus Palm, the writer, he's, he's one of you know, Sweden's top music writers. And he knew, and he's become since the world's ABBA authority he has, the world's greatest authority on ABBA. And then I learned the true story about ABBA, which is absolutely fascinating, yeah. about how all four of them were in different groups and were popular in, in Sweden before the, before they joined together as ABBA. Mm-hmm. Frida, the, 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 the brunette girl, 
she was uh, uh, the, the product of a, of a relationship between a German soldier and a Norwegian teenage girl, right, wow. uh, during the war, right? And she was uh, she was uh, an orphan essentially, um, and she had to leave Norway because uh, children of German soldiers were, were stigmatized, you know, and yeah. uh, they were put to detention in hostels, right? So a grandmother. And her mother died, and she never knew her father. And she was smuggled into Sweden. So, and desperate poverty as well, absolute desperate poverty there was. So her story is outrageous, it is. But her mother could sing well, and she inherited this beautiful voice. Uh, Agneta, I learned the, the blonde girl, and mm-hmm. Agneta hated being on stage. She had terrible, terrible stage fright. Oh, and, wow. And it was the reason, one of the reasons why Alba didn't tour very much was because she hated being on stage. She was frightened of being on stage. The, the, the keyboard player, Benny, he... He inherited his talent from his grandfather, who played the accordion. And when he was about three years, four or five years old, his grandfather taught him to play the accordion. <laughs> so I learned all this stuff about them. Um, uh, 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 anyway, uh, and how they came together, and then how they fell apart, and the two marriages. So it's all very romantic and what have you. They get married. You know, two couples were married and then divorced. I also learned about how in Australia, they were bigger than the Beatles. Oh, and wow turned out in, to see them, like there was madness in Australia, they, there was absolute madness, mania, have a mania it was in Australia, of, of all the places in the world, Australia loved them, yeah. you know? uh, they, didn't, they never did that well in America, though interestingly they did well in the northern states where it's cold, where I guess Swedish people may have, may have, yeah. may have set. You know what I mean? But they didn't, do, they didn't do well where it's warm in the sun. And then in the 80s afterwards, they lost all their money. They were ripped off, right? Oh. And they came together again, and they did this musical called Mamma Mia, and they're all multimillionaires again now. And, and the film they made of it's a huge, grossing movie. Yeah. And so the two boys who wrote the, the, the Benny and Bjorn, who wrote music, are like the richest people in Sweden. <laughs> but, they give quite, but the girls have got loads of money, too. It's a wonderful story, it is. Um, Wonderful story. Um, so, what was the next one? <laughs> the next one is uh, REM and Perfect Circle. This is a group I, I never met. I've no stories. I'm afraid about about REM. Mm. Uh, I have seen them. I saw them three times when mm-hmm. they were together. Um, I was lucky enough to see them quite early on because a friend of mine was ear bashing me about them, saying this group. This was after the second album came out. It's well after Reckoning came out. Yeah. They just passed me by, you know. I just and so they took me to Hammersmith Odeon to see them, and I thought, man, oh, they're great. This group. I'm something I always remember that show. It's, I'd never seen a group do this before, and that was they swapped instruments for a song. I can't even remember which song it was now. But hmm. Bill Barry, who was the drummer then, he got up and I think he played guitar. Stipe went down and played keyboard. Buck played bass. And I, I, I think Mick Mills might have sang or, or, or done something else. Or maybe he played drums. Anyway, the point, is, wow. the point is, they all swapped. And I'd never, ever seen a group do that. And I thought, that's a, this is a, a, an odd and it's a fascinating, quirky group. I'm going to like this group. Yeah. And I think this was when uh, Fables of the Reconstruction was out. It was the tour of that. So I went back and studied my REM. And then I and I commissioned a book on them from Tony Fletcher, one of my better authors who's British guy lives in America. And he got to know them. He went to Athens. And I think I can safely say that... Uh, from the 80s and into the 90s, no group's music gave me more pleasure than, than REM listening to them. Wow. Um, they were unpredictable as well. They were unpredictable. You know, I mean, I'm, not talk, you know, I'm not talking about older music. I'm talking about new music, if you like. Yep. Uh, I, I really thought REM were great. I did think they went off the boil towards the end. So. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I think they knew it as well, which was why they, they, they disbanded with their dignity intact. But they left behind an absolutely fabulous catalogue. And I still love listening to R.E.M. In, in the car, especially. I mean, it's great car music for driving along yeah. to R.E.M. I mean, I know they became big superstars with, you know, Out of Time and, and Automatic albums, those two, that sold zillions of copies. But they, they were always, there was always something quite a bit quirky about them, which I liked. And um, I liked them, you know, Stipe would come on his face painted blue or something. So what the kind of, you know, there's, there's always something interesting with Ariane. And I, you know, I, I'm really glad I, I'd like to, I'd love to, I'd love to have met Peter Buck, especially, I think, I think I'd have got on well with him. And I'm a bit surprised that since they disbanded, none of them, to my knowledge anyway, have, have put out any solo records, um, no. They're just not bothered. They're, I mean, they've got plenty of money, so they don't have to. I'm a bit surprised. I thought I thought one of them would have done. Uh, Is Michael Stipe not not doing something? No, he hasn't. He hasn't put out a record, has he? Uh. He's probably on a photo photography exhibition. So don't he like photography? I think he's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'd have thought you know Mick Mills would have done. Uh, maybe he's producing someone else or Bucky's. I don't know. Anyway, that's this is this, this is my my choice of an RM. Perfect Circle was the name of the book that my friend Tony Fletcher wrote. So I've picked. That's a lovely song. It's uh, again, it's lovely harmonies, isn't it? You know, it's funny. I think Mick Mills, the bass player, yep. is the secret weapon in REM because he's one of these guys that can play anything. He can play the piano. He can play the bass. He can sing really well. He can probably play the cello. They usually can these guys, uh, and he, he he'd probably get a you know play the accordion. Get a, get a few notes out of a trumpet if he tried. I've, something I've noticed uh, over a long period of, you know, an observer of rock and roll is that bass players are often the secret weapon in groups. Yeah, yeah. With John in The Who, uh, you know, John could play all sorts of instruments. He's trained, his mother was a piano teacher, you know, so he was yeah. playing the piano when he was eight. Yeah. And, and he played the French horn in, a, in some orchestra. Uh, it's the same with John's in, in, in Zep. You, oh, you know, yeah. Uh, and he's, he came from a musical family. His dad was a professional drummer in a dance band. Yeah. And Paul's dad in, in the Beatles, you know. Yeah. Uh, Jim McCartney played the piano, didn't he? And, yeah. uh, and And what have you. And it goes around. I mean, another group that I got fairly close to was Slade and Jim Lee in Slade, yep. who's their bass player, who wrote all the melodies of all the songs. Yeah. Uh, by the way, don't let anyone suggest that anyone else wrote the melodies. Jim wrote all the all the all the melodies. Uh, and again, he was he, he could play the piano, he could play the violin, he could play the bass, he could play anything. He's a natural musician, and he's the bass player. It's like Mick Mills in uh, in REM, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, John Paul Jones wrote the Black Dog Riff, I believe. Yeah, absolutely, he did, and and he did the arranging as well because he yeah. was arranging when Page was a session musician in the sixties, playing his guitar on records by everybody under the sun. Yeah, and Jones was often doing the arrangements yep. for for Duffy Springfield, especially he did, you know, and for Donovan, for all those Mickey Mouse acts, and uh, yeah. he was the backroom boy was Jones, you, you yep. know, and was probably. You know, set for a career like that, and a distinguished career as an arranger and producer, until he got a call from Jimmy saying, "Fancy joining a band or something." <laughs> yeah. all right. Mills also sang those high harmonies in REM, the same way that Michael Anthony did. Yeah, you're quite right. He sings, he sings those high harmonies, which are absolutely lovely, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I spoke, and, and there's, there's high harmonies in, in perfect in perfect circles. Michael Anthony did that in Van Halen, if you recall. Really? Did he? I, I didn't know that actually. There was never there were never a group that. Uh, 
I saw a lot of that that, that appealed to me that much. But yeah. uh, well, again, the the bass player is the secret weapon, definitely. It's like John Elliott could sing falsetto, you know. In the, yeah. In the end of um, a quick one um, when he's singing cello, 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 cello. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's John singing falsetto. Yeah. He really screwed up his voice with too many cigarettes and heaven knows what else. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, your next one here is Stone Roses and Ten Story Love Song. I put the Stone Roses in because I thought I'd better not seem like I'm too old. Either. Um, <laughs> the Stone Roses' first album, well, they only did two albums. The Stone Roses' album was, my, was another of my all-time favourite albums of the 90s was this. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I stuck with Stone Roses in. But I didn't pick a track from that because everybody knows that what they do in this country. You know, it's I Want to Be Adored and all those songs, you know. Uh, the second album was a big disappointment with the exception of this track. Ten Story Love Song, I think, absolutely fantastic. And it belongs on the first album. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, again, one of the reasons I put the roses in here was because I've only seen them once. It was last year. And my daughter, on my birthday's in May, got two tickets for a Stone Roses concert. And again, did not tell me where we were going. Right? <laughs> and um, my daughter is now 26. And Olivia said, I've got, we're going to go somewhere together, Dad. So I met her in London and we got on the train. It was at Wembley Stadium. And she said, where are we going? I thought, at Wembley Stadium, I thought we were going to a football match. You know? Actually, I, I, I kind of guessed because there were a few other people on the train that had Stone Roses t-shirts on. My daughter knew how much I loved the Stone Roses records. And she also knew that I'd never seen them because I may have mentioned it to her. Mm-hmm. And she thought this is a great treat for Dad uh, for his birthday last year. And she managed to get... A, she obviously knew someone or she won them in a raffle something to do with her workplace she got these fantastic seats just as a big stadium you know 80,000 people there, yeah which got them on the halfway line with a perfect view of the stage and who should be in front of me with his two of his sons but David Beckham oh wow <laughs> That's how good the seats were <laughs> wow Everybody was taking pictures of David Beckham because we we were a few rows up from the from the field, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But sufficiently up to be able to see over everybody's heads, but not too high as to have to look down. Yeah. And so, so all these people were taking pictures of David Beckham. They spotted him. Ooh, David Beckham. So all these pictures will have got me and my daughter in the background. <laughs> <laughs> And on came the roses, and it was the first time, and probably the last time I'll ever see them. And they were absolutely staggeringly good. Mm. Um, it was John Squire, the guitar player, who impressed me the most. Mm-hmm. You know what I kind of liked about them? What's there up? was only the four of them. A lot of times when you go and see groups, they enhance their sound with additional musicians, yeah. who are sort of session player type guys that they brought along just for the gig. They've got a couple of girl singers or something. They've mm-hmm. got an extra keyboard player at the back they've maybe got an extra guy doing rhythm guitar to, to beef up the guitar sound you know what i mean yeah not with the roses it was just the four of them right now the guitar playing on on, on the roses records is pretty intricate stuff mm-hmm. and john squire did it perfectly he did all by himself so well, that really impressed me because it was definitely loud as it is at stadium gigs yeah um, it was a lovely lovely summer evening and so it was just a great night and uh one of my big regrets of that night is they didn't sing Ten Story Love Song. They did one or two tracks from the from the second album, but they didn't do this one because I think they did every single song from 
the first album. <laughs> I said, because that album is so popular. I actually made a list of all the songs they did because I reviewed the show on my blog. I made a list of each song and there was only one song they didn't do. I can't remember which one it was now. There was only one song from the first album they didn't play. Hmm. So they were obviously still, they knew where their bread was buttered, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Ian Brown, the singer, mm -hmm. uh, he hasn't got the world's best voice, but I think he was en enhanced a bit. But, uh, but that didn't matter. It was it was the guitarist and a very beefy rhythm section. Maker. But it was John Squire, and I thought, guy, he's he's up there. He's up there in the Jimmy Page class. He is. Mm -hmm. I thought the way he played. I really did think that he's up there with, with with any of the great guitar players because it's when you see him live. It's anybody can overdub in the studio and sound good nowadays you know? but he's up there on a stage live replicating it exactly as you've done on the record and on the record of course it's double tracked you can tell that on some of the tracks that there's more than one guitar track but he somehow managed to make it sound as near as damn it like the record so i was very impressed with them wow. so um that's 10 story love song which is a my favourite track from the from the, the Roses uh, second uh, second coming I think it was called wasn't it? Um, I don't think there'll be any more records from them. They did one or two, I think they did one or two isolated songs, didn't they? Uh, since they reformed, because they fell out big time, of course. Yeah, almost big time as the Smiths. I nearly put a Smiths track in there, but I don't think we'll ever see the Smiths on stage again. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever see the Roses actually, because I think Brown and Squire had a big fallout in there or something. Mm. Anyway, there you go. That's that. Oh, how many is that? That that's nine. Now your last one, I'm very curious about, Chris. This is um, a, a woman who is very well known in Nashville, not super well known uh, outside Nashville. And this is a song that's special to me. The first time I heard the song, I was just spellbound. It's an incredible song. It's Gillian Welch and Elvis Presley Blues. Actually, she pronounces her name Gillian. Oh, does she really? You know that? Yeah. No, it's Gillian. She pronounces her name. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, everybody gets it wrong. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but she pronounces her name Gillian Welsh. Lisa and I, my wife, we, we, we've we've seen her, but only once. Only once. She doesn't come to England very much. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine at work turned me on to her after her second album came out, and he lent it to me a CD. And I thought, this is beautiful. Is this music? Mm -hmm. I went out and got it for myself, and then I got all the, all the rest of the stuff she never put out. And uh, I have a full set of Gillian Welsh recordings. Uh -huh. This is uh, it's what's referred to now as Americana. And in fact, although it's Gillian Welsh, the, the reality is that her and her partner, David Rawlins, are a duo, really, yeah. Yeah, to all intents and purposes. They write the songs together, they perform them together, and they record them together with additional musicians. The songs, to me, sound like they could have been written at any time in the last hundred years. Yes. Even though they've been written fairly recently. She has a way of evoking uh, misery and uh, and poverty, and she reminds me of uh, you know. You, are you familiar with the photographer Dor Dorothea Lange and her no. pictures of pictures of photographs of, of, of immigrants leaving Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl who are poor and trying to find their way to California to find work and uh -huh. John Steinbeck novels, this sort of thing. She evokes that era of America mm -hmm. so. And, and you uh, listen to her, she, she sounds like she could be from that period. And and she dresses a bit like that with sort of long dresses down to her calves and plain hairstyle and what have you. So mm -hmm. she could be someone from the 30s and the 40s. 
it's kind of a mixture of country and, 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 and spiritual music, but it's immensely attractive to listen to, I find. Yeah. Uh, she's a beautiful singer. She writes beautiful songs. There is a bit of rockabilly thrown in there. It's not all misery. You don't get the, 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 the wrong idea here. Mm-hmm. One of her most famous songs is called Orphan Girl, uh, which has been covered extensively. I think Emmy Lou Harris had a bit of a hit with it. This one, Elvis Presley, Blues, it's just a lovely, terrific song in yeah. which she bemoans, you know, poor Elvis, you know, and it's about and how he shook like a like a Harlem queen, yeah. and it's sort of a bluesy number. It was covered by Tom Jones, you know, the the the, the Welsh singer who, yeah. who big in Vegas. He did a terrific version of it. I don't normally like Tom Jones that much. I think he's a bit over the top, yeah. but. But but he did this fantastic version of it, and the only backing was from a from a, a dramatic synthesizer. No drums, no bass, no guitar, no piano, nothing. No, no. He did a really great version of it, hmm. uh, which I recommend anybody to hear. But I, I don't think he can really beat Gillian's version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my problems I have with Gillian Welsh is she's 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 very mean. Uh, she she puts out a record about every five or six years. <laughs> she's really slow outrageously slow yeah. uh, there's only five CDs to be bought uh, of original material there's another sort of live half a CD you can get from her but it's years and years and years between records she's she's very much a perfectionist I guess I would imagine she probably records stuff and throws it away records stuff and throws it away until she's absolutely 100% satisfied with it on stage she's really brilliant she has a, a great presence uh, she, she doesn't play big gigs, but she 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 can hold an audience uh, and, and creates this atmosphere with these songs about about poor people who are sick or who've lost a relative or sick or trust in God, but it's not going to work. Uh, that kind of thing, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And interestingly enough, John Paul Jones, who we were talking about earlier, he plays mandolin uh, for them. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Uh, no, he. Um, uh, if John's not doing anything much else, uh, he's friend, he's befriended them somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. And you know how, how John Paul is a great mandolin player. He played mandolin on, on stage with Led Zeppelin when they had that acoustic set in the middle of the rock and roll, you know, and he'd play on songs yeah, like... Battle of Evermore. In California, one or two others, he'd play mandolin. Yeah. And he plays mandolin on stage with, with Gillian Welsh and, and Dave Rawlins. And they've got a bass player and a drummer as well, I guess, when they go on tour. So when we saw them, it was just just the two of them. Another thing I liked about it as well, it, it was they, they did a long show. They did they did two sets. Yeah, you got really good value for your ticket money. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays I don't get free tickets so often like I used to, but I'm happy to pay for a good show. But when um, they were on stage for two and a half hours, you know, and maybe there was a 10, 15 minute gap in between. You know, and, and so they, they, they gave a really good show and you went away feeling you'd really heard a lot. So um, I can really recommend Gillian Welsh. It's a long, you know, it's a long way from rock and roll. But uh, uh, that's that's well, when I say rock and roll, I mean rock and roll. And that's Zeppelin song. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know. I thought I'd uh, you know, choose something that's uh, a bit different for you anyway. So no, that's going to watch. And that's my lot then, isn't it? Yeah. No, I, I'm glad that you included that song because that's a song that, you know, means something to me. It's it's uh, a song that makes my skin vibrate. And I was very pleased to see it on your list. And, you know, your your, your entire list is fantastic. And, and Chris, I really want to thank you. I could have done that. I could have done 
150 songs. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It's dead because it isn't very many at all. I could have done two or three Beatles songs, two or three Who songs, you know. Okay, well, that's it then. Thank you very sincerely. I appreciate your time, Chris. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest from the UK, Mr. Chris Charlesworth. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>